Good morning. My name is Margarita. Um, Marga, you can call me. This is actually my first time sharing with you guys, and I'm so excited to get the chance to just kind of speak here. Normally, it's Alberto. He's my husband, and he's on the teaching team. So this is just a great opportunity. It's also today is the perfect day for that, because yesterday we got to celebrate and just have so much fun together. It was a day full of joy and laughter and a lot of people and community and family. And so I just want to thank this church and just take the moment to say thank you so much for making not only yesterday, but this whole season we're expecting our first child. And so this is really lovely and beautiful to be in a community that has supported that from like day one. And to Wendy and Larry, who not only opened up their house yesterday to probably more people than they were expecting, <laughs> but um, who do that day in and day out. Like they welcome all of us into their homes and into their lives. And it's just a testament to what this church is about and how they're leading us. So thank you to them. Um, yeah. I'm also super grateful because this is such a great teaching series, right? I've been a Christian for the past 20 years. I was counting um, yesterday. And I've participated. I've led some studies on women. Um, usually they have like pink workbooks. Go figure. Um, but I've never heard the conversation framed necessarily in the way that we're framing it here. And it's really exciting. Um, a lot of times in my experience with women's ministry, I sometimes have felt kind of more inadequate as I leave rather than emboldened, or I feel like I don't totally fit the mold that maybe is being set up for me. And so last week, as Wendy was sharing, I felt just so encouraged and empowered and a lot less of an odd duck. Um, and this week, as Alberto and I were talking about women of the resistance, um, I just felt energized by God's calling, right, in this new, refreshing way. Because um, the problem was never the story. It was not the scripture. It wasn't the source material. It's this tendency to make maybe some of the characters one-dimensional or flat because that fits easier into our cultural biases and our tendencies. And so getting to complicate some of these characters and some of these women and some of these figures has been really kind of eye-opening. So for much of my Christian walk, at least, um, I've looked to women in the church for examples of the sort of role that I, as someone who loves Jesus, should follow. I didn't personally grow up in a Christian home, so it was a lot of watching older women in the church kind of live out their lives and seeing, like, is this a model that I can follow? Um, and I had strong, brilliant, independent women in my home, but there were also broken marriages and kind of uh, difficult families. And so I really struggled to reconcile strong women with, like, healthy marriages. As a result, I was looking to these church women um, just to see, like, what God's call for me could look like. And I remember one time in particular, I was going home with a friend um, in college, and I was really excited. We'd been friends for a year and a half. Um, she loved the Lord, and she loved people, and I knew that I was going to feel welcome in this house. And so I went home for Thanksgiving, and it was the best first day. We played games. It was like one of those families that you're just in and you want. And you're like, I want to have this family dynamic one day. I want to be kind of this sort of woman. The next day, we're preparing Thanksgiving. I'm, like, helping set up the table, and I'm having a bonding talk with the mom of the house, right? And she asks me the question you ask college students when you don't know how to engage conversation. So what are you, what are you majoring in? I was like, cool. Um, English, Spanish, linguistics. If you talk to me about school, I'll, like, go on forever, so I love it. So I was clearly really excited. She's like, oh, not knowing what to say next and what you ask any language major, so you're planning to teach, right? I was like... Uh, yeah, I guess so. 
Um, but I really want to get a PhD, and I don't know how long that's going to take. It's like five to seven years, and it's a long process, so we'll see where I end up. And she just kind of looks at me, and she is the sweetest woman, like just lovely and welcoming. Her husband's a pastor of a really large congregation in their town, and I had had such a wonderful night before that I was just like ready to soak up whatever wisdom she had to give me. Um, and she says, kind of changing the subject, oh, so are you dating anyone? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm not dating anyone now. Um, and she's like, well, let me, let me give you some advice. And just kind of looks at me flat in the eye. And I'm like, this is it. This is the moment when I'm going to get wisdom. Um, and she says, well, it's a little intimidating. And it might be challenging for you to find someone. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, because your plans are so lofty and they're so big. And... Men sometimes struggle to see a wife and a woman who is so career-driven. And especially because it's such a long road ahead, they might be thinking, like, where does family fit in? And I just kind of sat there and was like, okay, that wasn't what I thought this was headed. Um, I was stunned. I hadn't expected that. But I hate disappointing people, and I kind of felt like I had answered incorrectly. Um, for those of you who did the Enneagram workshop, I'm an achiever. So anything that makes me feel like I have failed in a moment is like, ah, it will torture me and stay with me. And I just felt like I wasn't living up to some sort of narrative that I didn't even realize was totally um, existing. So I felt kind of off and weird that whole day. And if anybody has experienced kind of an insecurity about maybe something that the Lord you felt was calling you to, but then doesn't match up with what someone else is saying it should look like, um, it stuck with me and it just kind of hung out there. Um, and it changed the way that I framed how I presented myself to other people, to other women in the church, and to other men in the church, because I felt like, I guess I have to make myself more palatable. And maybe I have to make myself smaller, right? Maybe smaller was God's call for me, and, and it just kind of hung out there. It worked out, thankfully. We mature our faith, and I'm so grateful that I found someone who was not intimidated at all by this um, in the least, and actually encouraged it. But it's not unique to, I think, the church narrative, right? We do that in history. We see that. We make women small, oftentimes, in the retelling. And that often means that some people get completely overlooked, and others are uh, kind of lifted up. And so I want to just take a little bit of time today to name a couple of women. Maybe you've heard of some of them. Maybe you haven't. This is all stuff that I'm passionate about. I'm an English major. I love history. I love stories. And these are all important women who have been crucial and central to movements um, that have transformed our society and who maybe were hidden, but they definitely weren't silent. And maybe were asked to be small, and they refused that over their life and for the sake of others. So the first one, we probably all know, right? Harry Tubman led the Underground Railroad um, in many ways, but she also was a spy for the Union Army, and she was five foot tall, right? Like, this is a small in stature woman who decided to do really dangerous things because she believed in a cause. She's the first woman who ever led a military expedition in the US, like that's huge, right? She was so successful in her endeavors that there was a, a bounty, right, on her head for $12,000. Um, Sojourner Truth, she's probably the second most famous abolitionist. Um, she lectured on anti-slavery and women's rights all across the nation, and she was famously illiterate. She would say, I can't read books, but I can read people. And she would dissect 
really complicated political and social issues into parables. And make her, if you read her work, she's like this sassy, wonderful woman um, who, had, who had something but a conviction and wasn't willing to let what maybe was um, a hindrance to her stop that. There's Maria Stewart, who we probably haven't heard of. Um, she was the first American woman to ever address a group of men and women, and she was an abolitionist. So this, what I'm doing right now, was forbidden, and she did not care. She toured, she had things thrown at her while she was speaking, and she persevered, lectured around the country. She ended up dedicating her life to also teaching young women, young black women, to speak up and to have a voice. And in the 20th century, there's a whole slew of other women, right? There's Vera Piggy, who was a beautician, and that was her gift, and that's where she was at. And she would speak to all of her customers about how to vote and teach them where to go, how to do it, how to get involved while she was doing their hair. There's Rosa Parks, who we heard from at the beginning, right? She was actually a lot more strategic than maybe we give her credit for. She didn't like that day decide, I'm gonna do this thing. That was planned. There actually was a 15-year-old who had been arrested for sitting on a bus when she should have gotten up nine months before her. And she took that and said, I'm gonna make this an even larger movement. Claudette Colvin's the name of that 15-year-old who did it first and was arrested. She was on her way home from school. And there's a slew of Latina women that I'm not going to leave out. <laughs> there's, um, of course, Dolores Huerta. She was a Mexican um, descendant U.S. labor and civil rights um, activist. She spent 20 years of her life just fighting for labor rights, immigrant rights. Um, she was arrested more than 20 times during peaceful protests and strike actions. You'd think at like the fifth, you'd be like, maybe I'm done. She kept going and going 15 more times after that. There's Digna Ochoa, who's a Mexican human rights lawyer who took on, at one point, the Mexican army, right? Um, she was kidnapped multiple times throughout her life. She was eventually assassinated because of the challenge that she posed to this government. Maybe you've heard of Nobel Peace Prize winner Rigoberta Menchú who was a Guatemalan human rights activist and fought for indigenous rights, or the Mirabal sisters for Dominican women who decided to take on Trujillo, right, and also three of them were assassinated, or the grandmother, I love this last one, Estela Barnes de Carlotto. She's an Argentinian um, grandmother who founded the grandmothers of the Plaza de Mayo, and she was dedicated to finding stolen children that had been kidnapped during the um, this really brutal Argentinian dictatorship. Her own pregnant daughter disappeared in 1977, and her grandson was stolen, and she looked for him and looked for him and rallied people around her to look for other missing kids. She looked for him for 36 years. 118 stolen children were found, and she was eventually reunited with her own grandson in 2014. I mean, these are all like just, and I could have gone on and on and on about powerful women who refuse to be small. So now, as I turn it over to Alberto, I'm going to switch over to Spanish to give him some time to kind of move up here. So ahora le voy a dar la oportunidad a Alberto que suba. Because we're going to discuss women in the Bible who could have also made themselves small. Vamos a discutir unas mujeres que también se pudieron haber hecho bien pequeñitas for whom small or sidekick could have been easier. It would have been a lot easier. It would have been a lot safer. Para quienes ser pequeña o ser simplemente una ayuda hubiera sido más fácil, hubiera sido más seguro. But they chose instead to resist and subvert systems of power. 
eligieron subvertir y resistir sistemas de poder y que le estaban diciendo que lo que quería Dios para ellas no era válido. These systems that were trying to tell them that what they, were, they felt they were being called to do was inadequate or unnecessary. And the women we're going to read about today, if you look at the story, they're complex. Their methods are complex. Las mujeres que vamos a estudiar hoy son complejas. Sus métodos son complejos. They don't fit into neat boxes. No hacen las cosas necesariamente tan fáciles. They're multifaceted. They're nurturing and caring and strong and courageous. Son polifacéticas, son cariñosas, pero también son fuertes y valientes. In many ways, they challenge the narratives that maybe some of us have heard about women in the church. Y quizás retan la narrativa que tenemos nosotras de mujeres en la iglesia. Because they model, and really those are who we should be looking for, porque modelan para nosotros, y esos son los modelos que deberíamos de estar mirando, much less flat, one-dimensional ways of serving the Lord and loving his people. Porque ellas modelan para nosotros maneras mucho más complejas, menos unidimensionales de servir al Señor y amar a su pueblo. So Alberto, come on up. Alberto, ahora le va a explicar de eso. Gracias, Malga. Te ves bien, linda. Um, algunas veces me, me preguntan, you know, eh, porque Marga es bien inteligente, you know, eso te, you know, does that make, does Marga being so smart ever make you feel like insecure? And I'm like, you know, and I think, and I'm like, no, because she picked me. <laughs> so I'm like, come on. But the reality is, why does one have to, you know, be, you know, Does, does for one to be big, does the other one have to be small? Are we occupying the same space or are we partners, you know? Are we, are we challenging and fighting for, for who's going to be on top, right? Or are we working together to, uh, um, that, that both, that together we would be, uh, we would, uh, be successful? Because we're a team, right? And so what's good for her is good for me. And what, when she is uh, elevated, I'm elevated, And her intelligence and her giftedness and her calling uh, doesn't make me smaller in any way, but it elevates me and it challenges me, and I, I love that. So, um, we're talking about women of resistance, and, and it was really fun this week listening to Marga telling, uh, all figure, like reading all these stories of these different women who did incredible things um, that are often not. Um, Uh, they're not named in our history or we don't hear about them or we don't talk about them, right? And uh, she got really excited. She was just going on and on. And names and names. And I'm like, babe, maybe we reduce it to like 10. I don't know. <laughs> right? <laughs> But um, uh, I would like to highlight two women uh, that we find in, uh, in the Exodus narrative. And we studied uh, Exodus recently. But... Um, Uh, that we didn't mention, right? And I think that their their part to play in this uh, in this story is important. And uh, I would like to highlight three things that they had in common with I think uh, each of these incredible women, uh, these contemporary leaders and uh, revolutionists that uh, Marga shared about. And uh, there are more, many, many, many more common elements, but I want to highlight three things that I think that they had in common and that, I, that the women that we're going to look at in, uh, in Scripture, I think, also have in common. Um, and these three things are, one, is that there was a personal commitment, right? There, there was, this was personal to them. Uh, this affected them personally, deeply, 
right? This wasn't just something that was, was happening. It was happening to them, right? Uh, and the outcome of their struggle affected their own person, their own position, their own livelihood, their own personal safety, um, right? And because it was so personal, there was this deep sense of conviction that I have to do something, that I have to step up, that I have to make a change, that there's, it, it falls on me to, uh, to do something in, uh, in this, right? There was this personal commitment, not only because it was personal, but because they believed that they had to do it. And commitment is such an important word, and I think commitment is a word that we're, uh, uh, we're, we're little by little losing, I think, in our culture. Um, this this idea of being committed to something. And when we talk to our mentors for Pathways or, or Young Life, one of the most important qualities that we look for is someone who's committed. I think that's one of the most important qualities uh, a person can have because life is going to be hard and working with kids is hard and marriage is hard and being you know in, in community is hard. There's going to be challenges. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when and how we overcome that. Our commitment to each other is, is what's going to matter. And these the commitment that these women had to the cause that they were uh, involved in um, and the commitment uh, that the women had in our story today is going to be um, they realized they had to get their hands dirty, right? There was a, second is a social conscious uh, that there was this, uh, they understood what was going on in their, uh, in their social context, right? And they knew it wasn't right and they knew something had to, had to happen, right? They were woke, right? And so, um, <laughs> uh, so there was, uh, and I want to read to you two uh, definitions uh, of oppression. And this is from the uh, Thought Co. Uh, it's a website um, for, uh, um, well, here's the definition, right? Oppression is the systemic mistreatment, exploitation, and lowering in status of a group or groups of people by another group or groups. It occurs when a group holds power over others in society by maintaining control over social institutions and society's laws and rules and norms. Like oppression doesn't happen because there's one person in charge and that one person decides this is what we're going to do. Right? This is a collective group that believes in a, in a common value that then uh, oppresses another group. Right? There is a, there's a commonality. There's a, there's, a, there's a thinking. There's this um, community to it. Right, um, And so I think, I think that's important to know also that the things that are going on in this time is not just because of one person. The things that are going on today, it's not just one, one leader. Um, but it is, it is uh, these ideals and these beliefs that are prevalent in, in a society and amongst a group, right? And, and what happens then is, and this, this is the second definition, is that oppression um, becomes institutionalized. And the danger there, and what that means, uh, it means is to be built into how our social institutions operate, right? And the, um, this means that Oppression is so common and normal that it does not require conscious discrimination or overt acts of oppression to achieve its end. This does not mean that conscious and overt acts do not occur, but rather that a system of oppression can operate without them because the oppression itself has become camouflaged within the various aspects of society. Does that sound familiar? 
Like it's not that it's not that it's just these overt actions, but that the the oppression has become so institutionalized into us that the systems of oppressing other people have become normalized for us that we don't even see it. Right? uh, They become these invisible structures that are involved in our society, that are involved in our life, that that oppress or elevate certain groups and oppress other groups, right? And then these become uh, institutionalized. It becomes such a part of the system that we don't even see it, we don't even feel it, and it's subconscious. And so this idea of um, uh, social consciousness is, is just, is, is an ability to awaken from that and to see something um, outside of that. And sometimes for that to happen, you have to get out of the situation. You have to uh, kind of be removed or you have to be either then some kind, something has to happen to kind of shake that up, right? I think about all the, uh, the well, we won't go into that. Um, <laughs> we're going to leave that one alone. <laughs> uh, and then third, I think that there was a spiritual conviction, that there was this, this spiritual conviction that, uh, that something wasn't right in their soul, in their spirit, and something had to be done about that, right? That this spiritual conviction, that, this was, that, there, was a, that there was a darkening of, uh, of their spirit and of their soul and of the world, and, and something had to be done uh, by that. And I don't know about you, but um, oftentimes I, I can pick up, I'm pretty sensitive to... Um, to uh, like a darkening of my soul, like if I watch like certain shows, like I will feel it like kind of descending on my spirit, on my soul, right? And I can feel it kind of moving in on me. And some people aren't like that and some people don't have that sensitivity. And, and that doesn't make me better or worse, right? It, but it, it's a, a reality, right? And then, but they had this sense of spiritual conviction that this wasn't right and that this stood against a moral code, a higher uh, moral code. And so I want us to uh, look at the story of these two women that are uh, probably uh, never mentioned um, in, uh, in our, when, we, when we think about the story of Exodus and when we think about uh, what, um, what was going on to Israel at this time, right? Uh, and, uh, but their names are here, and, so, and they matter. And what the sacrifice that they do mattered, and, the, and the, what they go through uh, mattered, and I want to highlight them um, for us this morning. And so to find, uh, to kind of set the scene of where we're at, we're in Exodus chapter 1, and we've, we've gone through kind of the narrative of Moses before, so I want to paint a little bit of a picture of before, uh, of, uh, of what's going on. Uh, the I- Israel had uh, gone through a severe famine, and, and Joseph had brought his whole family to, uh, to live in Egypt with him. Joseph had become the most uh, the second most powerful man in Egypt, right? And he was only under Pharaoh, and he had been instrumental in saving not only Egypt, but uh, Israel as well, uh, and, and all these countries around him from this, this uh, disastrous famine that had been around, right? He was an incredibly important figure uh, in the Egyptian uh, community because of the work that he had done and because of, his, uh, of how he had saved um, Egypt who was at the time the most powerful country uh, in, this, um, in this region. And so, uh, but then time passed. And uh, all of those who had gone down to Egypt had died, right? We'll pick it up on verse 6. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. 
But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Right? This is a good time. This is, this is a time of prosperity, a time of, uh, of, of um, provision, and things are going really, really well. And then, verse 8, a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. It's so interesting that he, that, that when I think about this, like, how did he forget? Like, what, like, what, how did he just not know about, uh, about Joseph and what, what he's done? But when you, what we really think about it, like, how much do we forget about our own history and about the things that have happened to us and about the things that have happened to our own communities, right? How often do we forget? And then we're reminded, you know, when we see things on the news or, you know, uh, I saw the other day that Columbine was celebrating 19 years since uh, the, the tragedy. And it was like, wow, that, that was a long time ago, right? And we're still facing situations in, in the same way, right? We forget about the things that have happened in our past. We forget about the way, uh, uh, about, um, and so this king forgot. And he did not know um, and how important it is for us to know our history and our, uh, and our story, right? To, to what we're, that we're part of this larger story and, um, and how that affects us, right? And so the, the new king says this, look, he said to his people, again, it's not, it's not an isolated person. It's not one leader He's incorporating the group of uh, his, his group, his country, his people. The Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies. We'll fight against us and leave the country. I, I find it interesting that he says leave the country, right? Because somehow there's this concern that they're going to leave, that they're going to go, which would suggest that there was some benefit for Egypt of having the Israelites there with them, that they, that they had a, a part to play in their community, right? And it was based on fear. It was driven by this fear of what if, right? This insecurity of what could happen, not what was happening. Right? Does that sound familiar? And so what do they do? Um, verse 11. And I, I can't imagine what uh, this must have been like for uh, the Israelites at the time, for the Hebrew people at the time. They put slave masters over them to oppress them and f with forced labor. And they built uh, Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians, can this group, right, came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter and hard labor in brick and mortar and all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. Imagine what this must have been like for the Hebrews. What a time to be free, to be, you know, living in your own land, to be doing your own thing, to be, you know, having your own job and, and your own. Uh, the, the Israelites were shepherds um, uh, to the Egyptians. Uh, that's what Genesis teaches us. And they lived in this area called Goshen. Uh, and so uh, all of a sudden, everything is swapped. Everything is switched. And these people who once were free, who are living amongst a bigger community, are now all of a sudden enslaved and forced into labor. It was a very dark day, a very, very difficult time. And then the king of Egypt wanted to take it another step farther. 
And this is what he says. And this is what he did. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name were Shipra and Pua. And Shipra's name means beautiful, and Pua's name means call, the one who calls out. Um, he said to these midwives, and they were the midwives, so they were, um, <clears throat> they were the Hebrew midwives, which most scholars believe that they, would, they were of Hebrew descent, right? that they weren't Egyptian. Um, and uh, not only that, but that they, these two would have been the, uh, uh, like the leaders or the, um, the heads of the, of the midwives who, uh, of the Hebrews, which were at this point um, possibly in the millions living in Egypt. And so it, it would be impossible for one or two women to be the midwives for that amount of people, right? That's a busy day, right? That's a lot of, you know, that's a lot of babies, right? There, you know, it was something like 80,000 babies a year, right? That's, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of kids, right? You know, and you thought your job was hard. Anyways, my God, I took a class with this doula. It was like, this is intense. Okay, the more, the closer I get to like, you know, uh, my God giving birth, the, the more intense this looks. So hats off to all the moms out there. Thank you. Thank you for what you had to deal with and what you had, the, the ordeal you had to go through. Um, because dear Lord, remind me later on to tell you my theory about Amazon and childbirth in the future. It's going to be great. It's going to have, sorry. Maria's in the back. Move along, move along. See, I tell you, she makes me better, right? She elevates me. All right? <clears throat> the king said to these Hebrews, now imagine if you were, first of all, in this time, women didn't have a place in court in Egypt, right? And, for, and, and Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was viewed as God on earth by the Egyptians. Now imagine being brought before Pharaoh, in all his splendor in the courtroom, you know, like the, the Oval Office was designed to intimidate people, right, on the other side of the, ch- of the desk, right? Imagine being in the court of the most powerful man on earth at the time who, li- who had the power to, to, to say a word and kill you at the moment, right? And you're standing in front of him, and this is what he tells you. Imagine what, what this must have been like. He commands them, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on their delivery stool, if it's a boy, kill him. And if it, but if it's a girl, let her live. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being commanded that? Like the, the weight of what they're asking you to do. This is... I can't even imagine. This is an incredible uh, thing to be told and commanded. What do you do with that? How do you walk away from that? What, what, imagine what Shipra and Pua must have said to each other as they're walking out of, of this place. And they had personal uh, commitment to this, right? Because this was their... Uh, this is your livelihood. This is your job. And on top of that, if you disobey, this is your life. So we're not talking about losing your job and not, you know, this is, we're talking about losing your life, making a decision, right? They weren't given a choice. And yet there's always a choice. And this is what the midwives did. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. And they let the boys live. 
Imagine how scary this must have been, though, for, uh, for these two uh, in knowing what they had to do and making the decision that they made and, and, and wondering what would be the outcome to that. They were commanded to end the life of thousands of little boys, of, of, to be a part of the oppression of a people, to continue this system of oppression. And they decided, they chose instead that they were going to do something different. And, this is, and they let the little boys live. Right? They had a personal commitment, right? They, this wasn't a simple task that Pharaoh was asking them, right? They, they, were, they were be put to death if they, by the decision they made. But they decided that this, that the life of these little boys, the life of these children mattered more than their own life. There was a personal commitment. There was a social consciousness, right? They saw what was happening. They knew the consequences of what was, and they were awakened to the plight, right? They knew that if they, uh, um, if they uh, participated in this, they were going to be continuing to, to uh, foster this oppression of their people. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. And then Pharaoh called them back. And here's, what's in, here's what I, one of the things that the last thing I want to highlight with them is this. What motivated them to not do this? The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king asked them. They realized that there was a greater command here. They realized that there was a greater law here. They realized that there was something more important here, that there was something greater to this than obeying uh, Egypt, uh, Pharaoh. And they realized that there was a greater power than Pharaoh, who was God on earth. Because these women were Hebrew women. And they knew uh, the God of Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. And they knew the, the stories. They didn't have the Bible. They didn't have, uh, they didn't have the books of the law yet. But they had the stories. And they knew from the beginning that God had made man and woman in his image. And they knew uh, the story of Noah in the, in the flood. And they knew the story that when Noah came out of the ark, this is what God commanded him. This is what God said to him. In verse, uh, chapter 9 of, of Genesis, verse 6, he says this, Whoever sheds the blood of a human by human hands shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made humankind. They realized that there was something more powerful here. There was an underlining law that was more powerful than the law of the land. And they chose that they could not take the life of these little boys because these little boys mattered. Now, we got to understand something, that this culturally, this idea that humanity, the sanctity of, 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 of life, wasn't something that was culturally held on to. The Egyptians, right, were very easily, uh, very red, red, ready to enslave the Hebrews and jumped on that, right? Other ancient cultures, life was not something that was, uh, that was celebrated in the same way. In, in ancient Rome, uh, the default setting was that babies would be, would be killed unless the father decided he wanted to keep the baby. 
in, in Sparta and in Greece, the state would decide which babies lived and which babies didn't. In other cultures, in other communities, right, babies would be sacrificed to idols and to gods. It was, a, a, and you know what? It's not even, it's not even uh, ancient cultures, but look at China right now is facing a crisis because of the decisions that they've made to, uh, with, um, of what life matters and what life didn't, right? And, and other cultures as well. Look at the United States, that the constitution of our country, which is a brilliant document, uh, states that certain people of certain color from certain ethnicities are only valued at three-fifths of a human. And in fact, the way that the United States could, in their mind, uh, 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 rationalize slavery was, in order for them to do that, they had to remove the humanity of the African people that they had enslaved. And so this, this wasn't a person, it wasn't a human, it was a property. Right? This, this belief in the, uh, in, the, in, in the importance of a human life wasn't there. Right? And so what these women are, did, though, was they, they went back to the beginning. They went back to understanding that people matter. That God has poured into every human being his image. And that that matters. And that their life matters. And so that black lives matter. And the lives of brown people matter. And the lives of the oppressed matter. And that has to awaken us like it awakened uh, uh, Pua and, and Shipra to the reality and the truth that these little boys' lives mattered enough to be willing to sacrifice their own life for that. And so they chose to defy the king. They were subversive in, in their actions and they defied the most powerful man. He couldn't control them. But he calls them to tasks. And later on we find out uh, that th these two women who risked their lives to save these little boys, God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And there's this, this moment where these women risked their lives to stand in the gap for these little kids, for these children. And so then Pharaoh gave, the story continues, right? And then Pharaoh, verse 22, says, Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. And we know the end of the story, that there is this horrible infanticide. Infanticide? Infanticide, did I say it right? Mine is in the back, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and the, the, baby, the baby boys were thrown into the river, into the Nile. And we find that Moses, when he was born, his mother saw him and recognized the life in him and saved him and put him in a little basket. She obeyed. She put him in the river. But she gave him every possible chance to live. I can't imagine what that would be like if my country would demand that I would have to take Sapito and throw him in a river. I can't imagine what pain this must have been, what hardship this must have been like, what life that must have been. Um, 
But these women decided that they uh, were going to stand for something greater, that they uh, were not going to give in to that. And, uh, and so they fought against the, the power that was. And they fought against it, and they fought for the life of these little kids, and they risked um, their, own, their own lives. And so my, my question for us this morning is, is this, is where, where do we stand in this? Uh, where do we find ourselves in our moment, in our own story? in your job, in your work, in your, uh, in your home? Um, is there a personal commitment that lives matter, that the sanctity of humanity matters, that every person matters, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're white or black, whether they're from this country or another country, that they, that they matter, that their story matters, that their life matters? Uh, and how can we step into that? How can we have personal conviction uh, for ourselves, right? How do I get involved? How do I say that, you know, and it's not that we, we don't have to do everything, but we have to do something. And how as a church, we're involved in our community and serving our, our neighbors and serving the community and serving pathways and serving young life uh, and, and serving uh, people, right? Because people is what matter. Right? Is there a social consciousness? Have we awoken uh, to the invisible structures that we see in our society, that we see in our community, that we see here? Uh, and are we aware of the institutional oppression uh, that we see around us? Uh, have we been shaken to uh, and awakened to, to that reality? Um, is there a spiritual conviction that we have uh, that all people matter, that the lives of the oppressed people matter to God, that God looks just like he looked at Israel and he saw them and he blessed them, even though they were oppressed. That his eye was on them and he saw them and he knew them and he sent, uh, he sent them a savior to, to rescue them. He sent Pua and Shipra to rescue these boys, to rescue their lives, and eventually would send Moses who would uh, be his instrument to bring the people out of, of this slavery. And that God has chosen some these women that are often forgotten and often hidden in our history who uh, fought back against oppression and fought back against slavery to uh, say that the lives of the oppressed matter. And I am uh, grateful that we belong to a church that does not... Uh, um, I, we belong to a church that... Uh, celebrates the life of everyone who's a part of it, that enables and celebrates and affirms uh, the calling uh, of the women in our church and affirms the dignity of life uh, of the women in our church and affirms uh, the life of those that we have here. And uh, I am grateful to stand with um, you, my sisters, who serve the Lord in that capacity, who have the personal commitment, uh, who have the social consciousness and the spiritual conviction to stand up for what's right. I'm proud to stand with Liz, who stands every day for kids in her school so that they have an education, so that they have a chance to learn and to grow and to, and to be removed from po uh, poverty. I'm, I'm proud to stand with Edis 
and, and Kayla who uh, teach Sp uh, English uh, to people in our church and people from the community. Uh, Kayla who moved to another country to learn the language, right? And Edis who uh, is, if you didn't know this, she translates everything we do in our church so that people who, uh, who speak Spanish will feel welcome and will know that they have a place in our community. I'm, I'm proud to stand with uh, Iceland who uh, walks Jennifer to school every Friday morning and gets her breakfast. I'm proud to stand with Julie who taught kids sports and athletics and health for years. I'm, I'm proud to stand uh, with Marga who teaches a young generation of, of, of kids to think differently. I'm proud uh, to stand with Shara who's teaching her grandson to be a good man and to love Jesus. I'm proud to stand in a church that stands with uh, some of the hidden figures that shouldn't be hidden because you are doing so much. I'm proud to stand with Clara who will one day rule the world. Yes. So let me pray. Jesus, thank you that you um, called us into life and that you call us to celebrate life and that every life matters. You call us to stand against oppression. You call us to stand against inequality. And you stand us to, uh, you call us to stand up for and to cry out, to risk our own life, to make it personal, to risk our own wealth, to to risk uh, all that we have for others, because they matter to you. And so, Lord, we just pray, God, that you would continue to help us awaken our spirits, awaken our minds. I pray that you bring conviction to us on the street where we see people around us, in our jobs, in our ministries, in our homes, in our places uh, where we exist. That we could uh, be a a aware of what's going around us and understand that you have called us to make a change and to do something different and to be the difference. And I'm grateful, Lord, that you call us um, into your son, um, Jesus Christ, who has made us all one. In Jesus' name, amen.